Good afternoon and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. Our August print edition hit the streets yesterday here in New York City. You can find the the August issue in our red and white news boxes in uh, dozens of public libraries, uh, independent bookstores, cafes, social movement centers, and other venues. You can also find all our latest coverage online at independent.org. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Amba Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. We have another fantastic show lined up for today. In our first segment, we're going to speak with Dr. Ronald Day of the Fortune Society about how the city of New York recently eliminated all $17 million in annual funding it provides to outside groups who provide educational programs to inmates on Rikers Island and who help to prepare them for reentry to society. And later in the show, we'll hear about changes that are afoot in the Democratic Socialists of America, the nation's largest socialist organization in more than a century, after this week's national convention in Chicago. We'll be joined by Alex Pelletieri, a New York DSA activist who was elected to DSA's 16-member National Steering Committee. But before we go to our guests, uh, Amba, uh, I want to congratulate you on your latest cover story for The Independent, which is about a hot labor summer, something you've been following closely. And as, as I was saying, the cover story for this new issue that's out on the streets. Right. Well, people have said it was a hot labor summer going back to last summer after the Amazon Labor Union uh, defeated Amazon for the first time in United States history. Um, but it's another hot labor summer because the Teamsters just uh, won. Uh, the Teamsters with UPS just won a historic contract against the company, uh, which is the largest private sector employer in the in the country right now. So that was uh, very interesting to cover how they were able to organize uh, for that win. And that all happens that is happening at the same time. We have um, Hollywood uh, actors and screenwriters from across the film and television industry uh, on strike. Many of them, of course, live here in New York as well. And we have uh, pizza workers, organizing unions, uh, the the tech workers at Grindr are organizing. Um, uh, Starbucks workers are still fighting for their rights and their union. Uh, there's a, it seems like there's a lot going on. Yeah, there's a lot going on. A lot of exciting uh, new labor organizing going on among old, you know, labor organizers and this younger new generation who is fighting for their rights in the workplace. And you also have a, a second uh, deep dive piece in this issue on the insane budget cuts uh, that the mayor and uh, majority of city council approved in June uh, affecting Rikers Island uh, and the jail over there. And those budget cuts are not reducing the huge army of guards they have, many of whom regularly skip work. But instead, they've targeted one of the few glimmers of hope that the incarcerated people on Rikers Island uh, can look forward to. Right, and that's daily programming, which we'll explain much about um, here in our upcoming segment. But uh, I've been following the situation at Rikers for the past few years, and while the conditions there have all been dire for decades, they've really gotten worse under the pandemic. So now with daily programming being cut, it, uh, it, it leaves, you know, the people that are incarcerated on Rikers in, in pretty, um, unfortunate straits. So, uh, going into our first segment, 
the Fortune Society and five other outside organizations have conducted those programs at Rikers since the early 1990s, which help people to uh, incarcerated people prepare to have a successful reentry once they are released and support them on a daily basis while they're incarcerated. And that programming, which cost 17 million annually, was the only component cut from the Department of Corrections $1.2 billion budget during the recent city budget deliberations. People detained on Rikers who have been participating in those classes and services will no longer have that bright spot to look forward to each day while they're held in pretrial detention. And half of the program's workers will have to find new jobs. And the people released from Rikers will now be re-entering society, as we said, with less support, but also fewer skills to hopefully chart a new path. Here to speak about all of this and more is Dr. Ronald Day, Vice President of Programs and Research at the Fortune Society. Dr. Day, welcome to the Independent News Hour on WBAI. Hello, Amber. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dr. Day, speak more about the programs. Speak about them in some detail. What was offered each day? So, every day for since like the the 90s or so, um, early 2000s, we've been offering services to people who are currently incarcerated in the New York City jails. So we have, we used to call them discharge planners. We recently started calling them group facilitators. They're in the jails on a daily basis. Um, you know, they're especially trained, culturally competent staff who go in, they were going into the jails um, on a variety of different housing units providing services to the incarcerated population. At one point, Amber, we used to be like in areas like the gym or we would be in classrooms, but under the prior administration, what he wanted to do, uh, Mayor de Blasio, is expand the services to people who are incarcerated. So that means we ended up moving to the housing units because we wanted to be able to serve as many people as possible. So now our staff, they were, on the housing units, we were in AMKC, which is the largest facility on Rikers. We were also in BCBC. And we would be offering, like I said, uh, evidence-based uh, services to individuals that were there. We we had, uh, we would do a discharge planning with them. We were offering group sessions with them. We were facilitating any number of different types of groups. We were doing stuff around reducing violence, um, reducing idleness for the for the participants there. We were had hard skills trainers coming inside, doing a variety of different training from we were offering OSHA 30 classes to them. They were doing electrical, plumbing, carpentry, a variety of different types of trainings for the individuals who are incarcerated. And they look forward to us, they look forward to us coming to the groups every day to engage with them doing groups around parenting for individuals who were disconnected from family members, talking to them about writing to their children. We were giving them court letters for their for their continued engagement in the services because we wanted to increase the chances that they could get a favorable outcome in their case. So, you know, we were doing all these different things. We were having family day events with them so their family members could come in and, and support the their, you know, their involvement in the program and see that they were doing something constructive while they were incarcerated. So there's a lot of activities that were associated with the contract that we had uh, with the Department of Correction that was recently cut as of um, June 30th. 
Right. And uh, Dr. Day, uh, can the Department of Corrections says that its own employees will start to provide these services. Uh, can you talk about the doubts that uh, the Fortune Society and these other um, outside groups who are providing services that they have about uh, the Department of Corrections capacity to match what y'all were doing? So they have civilian staff that are working in the facilities and they go in and, you know, spend, you know, some, some, a limited amount of time on the housing units working with the participants. But they were saying that they're going to expand the role of the counselors and offering the services that we were offering. We were, we were on the housing units for over an hour. Like I said, doing uh, an, any number of sessions with them. The idea that the civilian staff would be able to cover the housing units and the, doing the groups that we were doing with them, it just, it just made no sense to us. They were not, they, they're not prepared to, to offer these types of sessions. They didn't necessarily have the training. I mean, a lot of our staff were trained to be able to offer these evidence-based, evidence-based sessions, um, thinking for a change, um, ready, set, work, all these different trainings that the civilian staff were not trained to do that. And again, they stay up, they stop on the facility, I mean, on the housing unit for maybe 10, 15 minutes and, you know, play games with the participants at times. Our services for them are much more intense, right? We're, we're on the units. We sometimes in the mental health observation units as well. And we are engaging with these. We were engaging with them on, on a fairly regular basis. The, the DOC staff just were not trained to do this. And they just didn't have the, I don't think that they have the cultural competency to be able to deliver the services the way that we were. Right. And something really fundamental about the programming was uh, that it was led by many people who had been formerly incarcerated that you was able to, um, you know, make uh, strong bonds for that reason with the people that they were serving. So Dr. Day, talk a little bit more about that, but also tell us what you've heard from inside about uh, the, you know, DOC staff saying that, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, I know, I know, I know some DOC staff and they told me that this would be a huge undertaking for them to be able to carry the load that they have as staff in addition to the new assignments that they would receive for them to be group facilitators. I mean, I mean, they've said they they will try to get they will try to do this if, if they were asked, you know, to to cover the groups the way that we were doing it. But they said it's it's going to be a pretty Herculean task to do it. And I believe that DOC is trying to get the approval of DC thirty seven, right, the union that represents the civilian staff, to be able to because you know you try to expand their their responsibilities and. I don't know that that was actually approved. That was what DOC was saying when they, when they had the hearing with the city council, but about 40 to 50% of our staff were also directly impacted, right? So they were individuals like myself who had been incarcerated, who've been in, in, in those um, institutions and who had the empathy to be able to work with that particular population. And then again, have transitioned from those places and have been able to make something of ourselves 
So it's one thing to work in the facility. It's another thing to have that level of competency to engage with someone in a way where you can empathize with them and you can, you know, be the type of, uh, provide the type of support that they need, be understanding, non-judgmental, and, you know, provide them with answers, do, do the, we have, we're doing, um, the discharge planning with them. I mean, that is, you know, some of that is still happening now, but we were able to engage them in a way. Some people are 80% of the people who are incarcerated in the jails are there without um, convictions. So they, they're waiting for their cases to be adjudicated. Some of them we know are going upstate. So we were able to talk to them about what that experience would be like as well. So there was a lot of stuff that we were able to do that the department would not be able to do. Right. Absolutely. And so the programming, in addition to being, um, you know, a daily activity was pretty successful in linking people to services upon release. And as you said, there was job training. Um, you helped link people to OSHA training, you know, construction training and food prep training. Uh, the horticulture society had uh, was part of the contract as well, and they were yeah. training people on, you know, gardening, and that's no longer happening. Yeah. Uh, you even helped people find housing upon release. Now, how will the release programs be affected by this? So, it's being affected in a pretty substantial way because the staff on the contract that was cut were in the jails every day, right? They were able to establish a relationship with the individuals who were on the housing units. And you had maybe 10, 15, sometimes 20 individuals participating in group on a daily basis. And even if individuals who didn't participate regularly, you're able to go and talk to them and say, you know, I know you're going to be going out soon, or I know you're going to court. If we can be supportive of you, let us know what we can do. And having those conversations with them were really, um, you know, instrumental. Our staff who were there on a daily basis were able to do a warm handoff to the staff who were coming in from the community, the community-based staff. So, you know, think about it. You have teachers who work with students on a daily basis. You know, it's like they do this every single day. You have someone who's almost like a substitute teacher coming in and they're there not nearly as often um, working with the individuals. Having the daily presence in the jails and establishing the relationship with those individuals made it a lot easier for us to be able to connect with them. Right. And we know from our data that people who engage in our services while they're incarcerated are five times more likely to enroll in our services when they come to the community. So that's a huge difference. If we were not working with them in the jail, then the chances are less likely that they would come and engage in our services in the community. And we have very good success with individuals who are coming to our to our programs in the community, giving people care packages having all these different events that they can participate in. We do a block party this month. We do turkey giveaway on Thanksgiving. We do a Christmas um, school giveaway for people who have children and going back to school soon. We have all these different events and activities. We give them the sense of when they come to the office, we give them a cell phone. Sometimes we even have tablets for them at times. So there's a lot of stuff that we're doing for them, getting them connected to treatment services for those who need it, getting them connected to our job training program, a lot of our participants who are incarcerated in the jail 
are now in either fellowships where they're making money or they're in permanent jobs. So how, what are the chances that that would have happened had we not had that connection to the one with the Kashmir? Right. Now, there's uh, been speculation that these uh, funding cuts uh, were a move to get outside eyes and ears out of Rikers as conditions continue to deteriorate and more and more uh, inmates there uh, die uh, uh, in the jail. What do you and other people at Fortune Society uh, think about this this claim or this suspicion? I mean... there seems to be some resonance um, with providers who do this work that you DOC claimed that the cut was going to be not just the providers who were going into the work, but there were also some additional cuts. I ended up finding out from Amber and through your research that it, it ultimately was only the contracts that were cut that for the providers that are in the that are in the department. So I was really surprised to hear that. So, I mean, that's something that has had resonance with people that the fewer individuals whose eyes and ears are in the facility, that that's less that is going to necessarily be reported. Now, again, I haven't heard that, that directly, but I think that it, that it does make sense in, in many instances. Right. And, and amid this continued chaos and violence at Rikers, the lead federal federal prosecutor in Manhattan actually has announced that uh, they plan to request a court-appointed receiver to take over Rikers. Um, so that is news that we will continue to cover. But in our last couple minutes here, Dr. Day, I just wanted you to talk a little bit more about your own background and how that led you to getting involved with the Fortune Society. Well, the Fortune Society does something that our society needs, right? And this provides services to people who have been impacted by the criminal legal system. And we say we're a society that believes in second chances, but oftentimes we erect all of these barriers, no obstacles to people being able to secure uh, gainful employment once they get home, to be able to get um, safe and affordable housing. So I appreciate fortune because we offer um, all these different service areas from education to employment to mental health to treatment services. We have arts related program, anger management, you name it, we're one of the organizations that has the most comprehensive of services. And to me, as someone who's formerly incarcerated, I served 15 to 45 years in New York State Prison, 15 years. And I was on Rikers Island in 1992 when there were over 20,000 people in the facilities. So I've come to an organization like Fortune. I've been there almost nine years because we don't just offer services to people. We also do the advocacy, right, and the policy work that's really about changing the society and making it less challenging for people who have been impacted by the system. So I say I try to debunk a lot of myths and stereotypes about people who've been involved in the system. And, you know, about 50% of the people who work at the Fortune Society are also formerly incarcerated or have family members that are incarcerated. So, you know, it's just an honor to do this work and to show individuals that when there are opportunities that individuals can turn their lives around and make a really significant impact in our society. So, you know, for me, this is a blessing to be able to do this work and to represent those who are coming behind me and to go into places like Rikers Island, be an inspiration. For others and say we believe in 
in those individuals, sometimes even when they when they don't believe themselves. Right. Well, Dr. Day, you certainly are um, an inspiration to uh, the people that work with you and the people, you know, that are incarcerated, I learned during my research. So thank you again so much for joining us uh, for the Independent News Hour on WBAI, Dr. Ronald Day, Vice President of Programs and Research at the Fortune Society. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me and thank you for elevating this issue, which we really feel is really important. Absolutely. Well, we'll make sure to keep up with you in the Fortune Society. We are going to go to a short break, and then we will be back with more. Listening to Passage by jazz drummer Jonathan Blake, and Blake will be performing with the Bill Frizzell Four at the Village Vanguard through Sunday, August 13th at 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. I encourage getting tickets if you can. You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. I am Abigail Garian, your co-host, joined by my other co-host, John Tarleton. We're with the Independent Newspaper, New York City's free lefty independent newspaper. And uh, we are broadcast- broadcasting on WBAI, like I said. Uh, and WBAI is able to broadcast each month thanks to listener donations. Listener donations is the only way that we're able to broadcast. And we need to ask you to support the show and the other shows on the network. We bring you voices from the front lines, from the streets, people that we meet while we're doing in-depth coverage of the stories that matter to working people and marginalized people and everyday people in New York. And we bring them to you unfiltered on the air. So if you want to keep that work going, please donate to WBAI. You can do so by calling 212-209-2950. Again, that phone number is 212-209-2950, and we'll be giving it to you again in a little bit. Or you can go online to give the number 2 WBAI.org. That's give the number two WBAI.org. And I am here, as I said, with my co-host John Tarleton, who unfortunately um, is muted. I'm back. He's back. <laughs> yes. And he so you of that phone number. Yeah. Let me uh, uh, help out. Chip in here. Uh, 
212-209-2950. You can also uh, pull out the plastic and go to give number two, WBAI.org. One of the very best things you can do is become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month. Uh, you can help support this station every month. You get lots of awesome uh, premiums and benefits from being a WBAI buddy. And it's uh, listeners like yourself that have kept this station on the air for 63 years. I mean, Amba, your, your uh, dad used to perform on WBAI. So, I mean, it, uh, this is such a, a multi-generational uh, a station and community institution that we have to keep going. Right, absolutely. He did. Uh, when he heard that I was on the station, he was overjoyed um, to know that it was still, you know, going on alive and thriving. He doesn't live in New York anymore. Um, and we have uh, older announcers here, you know, some incredible uh, investigators like Tom Robbins, Deadline New York City, and uh, and then younger people like myself <laughs> who are here. We have uh, Rachel Hu, who announces a covert action on Wednesday morning. She's incredible. And so it's about keeping that alive all within the scope of independent media, the only independent station on the New York waves, fully independent, that is. So please donate by calling 212-209-2950 or go online to give the number to wbai.org. Right. And uh, I mean, there'll be more uh, great programming uh, uh, throughout the evening here on uh, WBAI. We'll have a uh, half hour edition of uh, Democracy Now! from 6 to 6.30 and then interpersonal uh, update uh, with uh, Harriet Fraud Wolf from 6.30 to uh, 7. And then there'll be more uh, programs, uh, um, revolutions uh, uh, by the minute uh, from uh, uh, New York City DSA from 7 to 8 p.m. Uh, Cat uh, Cafe and uh, um, other uh, programs uh, throughout the night. Um, uh, I'm just uh, scrolling through our schedule here. Uh, Out FM from 8 to 9 p.m. Cat Radio Cafe from 9 to 10 p.m. And The Sweet Spot from 10 to 12 p.m. So you get great uh, you know, uh, public affairs and news coverage here on, on WBAI, uh, great, you know, uh, interviews with political activists and change makers and also, uh, music and cultural programming. And it's all made possible by, uh, listeners like yourself who, who pick up, uh, I won't say pick up the phone, but pick up their device and, uh, uh, call 212-209-2950 and make that pledge, whether it's a one-time contribution or becoming a WBAI buddy. Um, I became a WBAI buddy last year. It's great. I'm, I'm happy to chip in a little bit each month. I mean, we already do uh, all the work on the show, but and we can all always all do a little bit more. Uh, 212-209-2950 or give number two, uh, WBAI.org. Um, so. Again, we thank everybody who, who gives and supports uh, this station. You make it possible for us to bring on uh, voices like Dr. Ronald Day, you heard from a few minutes ago, and also uh, voices uh, like the one we'll hear from in a minute, Alex Pelletieri, uh, a young uh, Democratic Socialist who's an organizer here in New York City. Um, and as we turn to our second uh, segment for tonight, uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States in several generations with more than 80,000 members, held its biannual national convention in Chicago over the weekend. 
and uh, debated and deliberated the sort of the future path they want to go on. Uh, they also are, are really leaning into um, doing uh, more organizing with this resurgent labor movement, especially with the sort of the younger wing of the movement that's uh, challenging the status quo at the rank and file uh, level. They elected uh, a new, uh, you know, national steering committee. Um, and uh, yeah, it was an interesting uh, weekend. Yeah, absolutely, John. So uh, tell me what stood out to you about that convention uh, as you were following it. Over. Right. I mean, I, I wasn't able to be there in, in person, uh, unfortunately, but I definitely, you know, followed the 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 rhetoric and the and the you know communiques that are coming out in advance and the the discourse that was going on during the convention and afterwards and I you know I think uh, DSA is at a bit of an inflection point they they grew uh, extraordinarily uh, quickly uh, from 2016 to 2020 with uh, sort of uh, riding the coattails of the two Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns the shock of uh, when the Democrats failed to stop Donald Trump from taking the White House, also the elections of people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But that sort of electoral upsurge moment of a few years ago has cooled off and and, and their membership has uh, dropped some. I mean, it's still a large organization, but, I, you know, I think they're still kind of trying to find their way in this uh, sort of post-Bernie moment. And uh, a lot of organizations, uh, progressive, left-wing or otherwise, in the United States are, are struggling at the moment. This often happens when you have a sort of a, a milquetoast Democratic administration. A lot of people sort of relax and uh, feel like they don't have to engage as much, and other people uh, feel thwarted and frustrated when a Democratic administration sort of in- inevitably uh, disappoints them. So uh, DSA has really had uh, to, to grapple with this as well. And, and and figure out how they want to sort of navigate this uh, uh, new moment. And I uh, started out by asking uh, Alex Pelletieri. Uh, and, well, just want to say one thing real quick about Alex. He was a uh, a leader in the Hunter College, uh, uh, Young Democratic Socialists of America in recent years. Um, that chapter has been very active, and also a leader in South Brooklyn DSA. So um, very immer- and he was the campaign manager for Marcella Matenias. Uh, uh, a tenant organizer and socialist who was elected to the state assembly from uh, Sunset Park in 2020. So Alex has been involved in various levels of DSA, and he was one of 16 people elected to their national steering committee this weekend. And uh, I started out by asking him uh, what kinds of changes he expects to see flow out of this weekend's convention and why he feels those changes are necessary. I was very happy with the decisions that that were made. Um, I I think that we made a DSA that is oriented towards um, building an independent political party. I think that we made a DSA that that, or reaffirmed our commitment to the rank and file strategy. Uh, I think that we invested in some of the most crucial parts of our organization, such as YDSA. Uh, We also have campaigns for things like uh, trans rights and, and bodily autonomy. And also um, with things like the full-time co-chairs or the Democracy Commission that passed, I think that we are providing an answer to a lot of the in, the, the questions that I've been, been facing our internal structure and, and internal democracy. And, uh, you know, DSA, I, I think that prior to this convention, DSA was very much at a crossroads. That's something I said a lot during, during this campaign. 
um, you know, our direction forward, our, our identity wasn't clear. You know, many of the uh, issues that we're facing DSA, such as our loss in membership, there wasn't a clear answer to that. And I think that this convention really answers those questions and puts us in a really, really good place uh, over the next two years. It, now, DSA is the largest socialist organization in this country uh, in at least 80 years, maybe more than that. Uh, but why do you think uh, more recently it has lost membership? Is that uh, due to internal problems or the larger political climate? Um, I, I think that the things that first uh, gained DSA, the net membership that it did, the Bernie campaign, uh, the Trump election, the election of AOC, those moments have have passed. We've definitely recruited members for it. We've definitely are still feeling the these effects of it, but there's a lot of, you know, still a lot of issues in, in the world, you know, whether it be attacks on abortion, attacks on trans rights, um, you know, several unionization efforts. And I think that, you know, in the case of Bernie, in the case of AOC, if you wanted to continue this fight, you joined DSA. That was the next step. It's that's not as clear. It's not as obvious anymore. You know, if, if you're a worker who's who's going on strike and wants to continue to work, it, it might not be as obvious to join DSA as it would have been a few years ago. But we're changing that. You know, that that's really been changing. Um, you know, in addition to things passed at the convention, I know many rank and file teamsters joined as a result of the strike ready campaign. So I think that. Our goal um, is really to to merge DSA with the labor movement, uh, so that we're a place where workers can fight for political rights beyond their own um, labor rights. Merge DSA with other social movements, um, and I think that through that, we're really going to see uh, an invigoration of our organizing. Right, and can you talk more about uh, what the rank and file strategy is? And why you and other like-minded folks in the DSA see that as uh, a central to the organization's future growth? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So the rank and file strategy is basically the idea that socialists should take rank and file jobs in strategic industries. Uh, the most common ones are becoming teachers, becoming nurses, uh, or becoming teamsters. And the idea is to, um, push the labor movement left, build more militant and democratic unions, and ultimately re-merge the socialist movement and the labor movement. And, you know, if you look at the history of this country 100 years ago, or, or even beyond that, um, almost every, you know, there are unions that were almost entirely socialist, that the labor movement and the socialist movement were almost indistinguishable. And for a number of reasons, Though so that has changed, you know, that, that that's ceased to exist. But the rank and file strategy is about rekindling that relationship and making people realize that we cannot win socialism without a, a organized and militant labor movement on our side. And, you know, we cannot really win true liberation for workers, have true workers' rights in this country under a capitalist system. Okay. And, and, what do you mean uh, when you when you talk about the DSA becoming uh, more of an independent political party? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there I think is broad agreement that the Democratic Party is not a, a party for us to be in. That they're they're not people who are advocating uh, for workers. They are not people who are sufficiently fighting the right. And the goal of our electoral work should be to break from the Democrats um, and form 
a new party that is separate from them, a new party that is rooted in the working class and a party that is actually fighting for things that are going to benefit working class people. And, you know, DSA has a number of elected officials at the federal level, at the local level, and we have several here in New York City. And I think that many people have taken that as a sign that it's time to stop simply talking about why we need a workers' party and actually set the groundwork for for building one. So um, there was a resolution that passed with, I believe, close to 80 percent act like a party, which is something that I was very excited about and, and spoke in favor, which would say that it would direct our um, National Electoral Committee to help chapters across the country um, not only set up their electoral infrastructure, but do so in a way that builds political independence. So having elected officials um, caucus as socialists, separate from the Democrats, coming up with their own priorities, um, having people talk about how they're a democratic socialist on the campaign trail, you know, develop uh, a DSA brand that people can recognize anywhere. Um, I, I think that, you know, our goal should, should for be, uh, should be for people to, to see elections as a competition between, you know, a far right Republican candidate, you know, your centrist, boring Democratic candidate, and then the Democratic Socialist candidate. Right. I mean, I, I, I get the idea of, of, of creating more uh, organizational independence in, in mm-hmm. identity. I mean, I, at the same time, uh, the DSA has had unprecedented success mm-hmm. uh, over the last few years running candidates on the Democratic Party ballot line in Democratic uh, primaries. You managed the campaign of Assemblymember Marcella Matanias, which uh, succeeded in knocking off one of those very stale of mm-hmm. Democratic incumbents who had been uh, holding that mm-hmm. seat in Sunset Park for many years. Uh, do do you envision uh, actually wanting to give up running on the Democratic uh, ballot line in contested primaries when that's been so successful so far? I think that that should be the goal. That's not something that I think is possible right now or or in the near future. I think for the foreseeable future, we should still continue running people on the Democratic ballot line. But that's definitely something that we should build build towards. And I think that the reason why DSA has been able to grow so much, why we've been able to 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 win uh, races like Marcella's race is because we presented a fundamentally different vision from the Democratic Party, uh, whether it be in the way that we do politics in a democratic way, um, you know, and, and by electing people who aren't just individuals, but going to Albany as a socialist bloc, um, or, or the policies that we put forth, I, put forth, I think we developed a fundamentally different vision. So I think that that vision will still exist, whether it be in, on the Democratic line um, or, or beyond. Not, not to belabor this too much, but there's really been no successful third party in in American history since the party system uh, mm-hmm. first uh, took hold in the 1830s. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why do you think someday that could be different for the DSA? I think that study, you know, elections and studies have shown that people are not happy with either party. People are not happy with the Democrats. They're definitely not happy with the Republicans, but there has been a real effort to keep this two-party system. You know, it has become increasingly and increasingly harder, um, whether just ballot access laws, petitioning, gathering laws, to form a party that is not 
um, that is not anything other than the Democrats or Republicans. So, you know, as I said before, DSA has presented a fundamentally different vision from the Democrats. I think we've proposed ourselves as an alternative from the Democrats, and that has become wildly pop- popular, whether it be our support for Bernie, support for our local candidates, support for our, our labor organizing. So I think that the people who support DSA are not um, people who, who support the Democratic Party. They're people who are looking for something different. And I think if our organizing can really harness that energy um, and really bring them closer to DSA, really point out the flaws in the Democratic Party, and then I do really believe that that we can build uh, a workers' party. So this uh, uh, increased emphasis on labor organizing, uh, uh, that doesn't mean the electoral side of DSA is being demoted? No, I don't, I don't think so at all. Um, you know, it, it's not whether or not we can do electoral or labor organizing, I think they go hand in hand. And as I said before, you know, we need to rekindle the relationship between the labor movement and the socialist movement. And having that connection is definitely important for building an independent party. We're not going to to do that without a, a strong militant labor movement. So I think a lot of things like the rank and file strategy that that we passed, I think are actually going to really complement uh, DSA's uh, electoral organizing. Right. And, and two other issues where uh, DSA uh, is engaging uh, that come with a lot of uh, controversy around them these days uh, is on uh, Palestine and on, on trans uh, rights. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you talk about uh, why the DSA uh, is engaging so strongly with those two issues? For sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think those are two issues that are really core to, to any socialist platform. Um, at this convention, DSA did reaffirm our support for, for BDS and Palestinian rights, which was, which was very exciting. Um, we also passed campaigns and I believe both our DSA and our YDSA sections that will center, uh, trans rights. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I think that this is definitely going to be one of the main things that we are doing um, in terms of our social movement work going forward. Uh, in New York City, we have the Not Not On Our Dime campaign, which I'm sure you're familiar with, put forward by DSA and Dorset Assembly member Zoran Mamdani, um, which is basically saying that companies who are investing and financially supporting apartheid should not be a, get uh, tax dollars from, from New York City uh, residents. And, and I think that that's a really great example of, of Palestinian um, organizing uh, uh, that's that's going on uh, in the city and, and something that I think I definitely want to be part of, but also that I think DSA should support more going forward. Right. But, but for people who may not uh, automatically see the connection, uh, can you talk about uh, why uh, Palestinian rights, why trans rights uh, it is uh, so important for people who might think, well, I, I want a Green New Deal and I want Medicare for all and I sure ate my landlord, um, <laughs> and I'd like a, a labor union. Where, how, do, how do these other issues also fit in, uh, and, and why are they so important to DSA? Yeah, I mean, all of the issues you mentioned are products of the capitalist system. You know, whether it be uh, what's going on in Palestine, you know, recent anti-trans laws, people who are are being evicted or can't pay their rent. Those are all results of of capitalism, and we can't fight capitalism on some fronts and not others. You know, we can't say, well, we're going to fight 
capitalism when it comes to, to housing and, and how housing is used for profit. But when it comes to American imperialism, that's not something we're going to touch on. I, I don't think that's a very effective strategy for, for socialist organizing. You know, we, we need to recognize that all these struggles are collected or collect are connected. All these struggles, uh, share a, a common energy and we need to fight it. It's in its, in its entirety. Right. And it, it's striking at this moment when, when, uh, so many other organizations, uh, wherever they may be on the political spectrum or even organizations that aren't explicitly political really are seeing declining memberships and participation. Uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about, yeah, how DSA is, uh, sort of created an internal culture that, uh, uh, keeps people enthusiastic and engaged. I mean, I know there's been a, a decline in membership, but there's also, uh, compared to almost anything else in this country, uh, still a, a unusually high level of uh, engagement mm-hmm. in, in your organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that people feel a sense of ownership over the work that they do, that they have the ability to shape the political direction of DSA. That they have, you know, an ability to, to take lessons they've learned from their organizing work and implement that, uh, in, in what we do next. And I think that there's really this culture of that. This is all of our DSA, you know, even me, we're all, you know, can, can equally participate and should have an equal say. And I think that, as you said, that's really rare for a, a lot of other places. And I think that. You know, being able to participate and really set the direction of the socialist movement is something that has kept a lot of people around and is something that is, that is very unique. Nice. And, uh, last of all, I mean, you, you will be serving a two year term, but even looking beyond that, where, where would you like to be a DSA to be at, say in five or 10 years from now? Um, whether in terms of, you know, just, total membership or its overall uh, uh, role in society? I mean, how, how much more can it grow? I mean, I think we're, you know, we're, we can, we're going to grow a lot more in that time. Uh, I'd, I'd like to see us crack 100,000 members and, and beyond that. I think it's definitely achievable over the next several years. Um, but I think, I would like DSA to take much more of a hold in working class communities. So I would like for more rank and file union members to say, oh, yeah, I know DSA. They were the ones who supported me on strike. You know, my, my coworkers are, are members of them. You know, the, the Democratic Party and other people, they don't do anything for me. But DSA, they're the ones who supported me when, when we were on strike. I'd like, and I'd like for many of those members to join DSA and become leaders in, in DSA. I'd also like for, for DSA to have more of a recognizable brand when it comes to electoral politics. I think we very much identify people like Marcella Matanias or Zoran Mamdani as DSA endorsed candidates as socialists. But I'm not sure how many people who are, you know, not plugged into to left wing politics really do. So I hope that we can be at the point where people are like, oh, yeah, can be walking around their neighborhood see a flyer for Zoran and be like, oh yeah, Zoran's, that's a DSA candidate. Or when they're going to vote, be like, I'm voting for Zoran because they're a socialist. So really build up this brand, really um, move beyond simply being, you know, very active in certain left-wing circles to take a hold in, in the entire working class communities. 
Okay, that was uh, Alex Pelletieri, new, newly elected member of uh, Democratic Socialists of America's uh, National Steering Committee, talking uh, to the Independent News Hour earlier uh, today. And we'll be back uh, with more after this short music break. was These Hours of Mine by Otis Redding. You're listening to the Independent uh, News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. And uh, um, this is uh, John Tarleton, and I'm also joined by my co-host, Amber Gagarian. Uh, we just have uh, several minutes left before we'll have to uh, leave for this evening. Um, Amber, I mean, one, one thing we've both got our eye on is uh, there is one big election today in the middle of this uh, a sweltering summer in uh, the state of Ohio is going to have a huge impact on uh, the struggle for abortion rights. And uh, uh, the, the polls are going to be open for a couple more hours in Ohio before we start to see some results. Uh, pretty incredible situation there with uh, what, what the uh, Republicans are, are trying to pull off. Right. Absolutely. This is a a struggle over, you know, democracy in Ohio in a lot of ways. It's about whether or not uh, voters with a simple majority can, um, you know, uh, support a referendum that would change the constitution uh, of the state. And uh, it's being done so by Republicans and uh, abortion critics uh, because there is currently, um, you know, a referendum that will be on the ballot um, where they could enshrine essentially a right to an abortion in the Constitution. Right. Uh, Ohio, like a number of states over 100 years ago, uh, enacted uh, a, a direct uh, referendums for voters to be able to speak and uh, overturn the, the actions of their state legislatures. Um, and, and now uh, with uh, Ohio voters looking like they will uh, uh, approve uh, a pro-choice amendment to the Constitution in November, we have this measure that would all of a sudden lift the bar for approving um, uh, new constitutional amendments in Ohio to 60%. So sort of making a mockery of of democracy. Uh, They scheduled this election in the middle of August when they were hoping uh, people wouldn't be paying attention. They've tried to galvanize uh, not only 
uh, anti-choice uh, fanatics in Ohio, but I've also tried to uh, convince a number of conservative voters that if they, if they don't change the rules around direct voter referendums, uh, the you know the liberals could come and uh, take their guns next or Im- impose you know the so-called trans you know transgender ideology and all their other uh, boogeymen they like to uh, scare their people about. But yeah, it's fundamentally about democracy, and this is just one more example of how the crusade against abortion rights um, is is not only uh, incredibly destructive for the rights of women, but for uh, other people in other ways as well. I mean, they're they're trying to dismantle a, a, a key provision of the democracy in the state of Ohio just to accomplish this this uh, fanatical uh, goal of theirs. And um, so we'll be keeping an eye on that. Um, we don't, we only have uh, about another minute here, but something else, you know, I, I saw in the headlines today that is really mind blowing. Uh, the sort of con- conservative uh, legal machinery is once again targeting uh, some of President Biden's student loan forgiveness initiatives, uh, including one that would uh, end uh, payments for people who've been making uh, payments for 25 years or more. Somehow uh, they're offended by that. Um, they're also looking to knock out a, a law that would give debt forgiveness to people who were uh, preyed on by predatory for-profit colleges. So, I mean, we're, you know, again, just seeing, uh, you know, these forces of uh, greed and reaction, you know, have to be pushed back on constantly. And, uh, and, and I think it's important to remember that with the, the whole movement for student loan, uh, debt abolition really began at Occupy Wall Street when, when people showed up at Zuccotti Square. So many people were hurting, uh, amid the mass unemployment of the recession in that time. And, and those demands originally, I mean, David Graeber, the great anthropologist and radical activist here in New York, helped uh, sort of articulate the demands of that movement with his best-selling book on debt. And and some incredible organizers have carried that spirit through over many years and forced people like President Biden to uh, step up on student loan debt in a way that I don't think he ever in, originally intended to. And, and I will see uh, how absurd the, the courts can get and, and whether at least some people will uh, get some uh, relief uh, but unfortunately, we have to uh, go for now. We'll be back same time next week. Uh, what is uh, what's our final uh, uh, song for tonight? You're going to be hearing Mandinka by Sinead O'Connor, who died at the end of July at the age of 56 and was known for her music as much as for her outspoken activism. 